reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Andrew Ponson. And we're kicking off, as we always do, with a look at what's hot in the world of science this week. Helen. Well, I've got a birdie story to start us off with this week, with a discovery that birds living in colder climates have evolved smaller beaks than their fair-weather cousins, and it's probably to keep them warmer. That's what a new study is showing, and it was led by Matt Simmons from the University of Melbourne in Australia, and it was published in the American Naturalist Journal. And what they did was they looked at over 200 species of birds from across the globe. That included African barbets, tinkerbirds, Australian parrots, Canadian game birds, penguins and terns. And they looked at how their beak sizes varied um, with the temperature regime of the native habitat that these birds are normally found in. Now, we already know from thermal imaging studies that birds like toucans and geese can lose an awful lot of their body heat through their beaks. Well, now Simmons and the team have some really robust evidence that birds living in colder environments, whether that's towards the poles or up a mountain, tend to have smaller beaks. Now, it could be that birds in warmer climates have evolved the big beaks to shed heat, but the authors think that it's actually a bit more likely that cold temperature is a constraint on the size of the bird's beaks. Now, a huge great big beak radiating heat would be a huge liability if you lived in a cold climate, no matter what the other advantages that might come with it, like communication or attracting those all-important mates. Well, This is the first in-depth study that backs up a 133-year-old theory called Allen's Rule, and that predicts that warm-blooded animals from colder parts of the world will evolve smaller appendages, and that includes ears, tails and limbs. Now, the team didn't find such a strong relationship between bird leg length and temperature, and it really strongly suggests that it's the beaks that are the most important source of heat loss, and consequently that they really need to regulate their body temperature by controlling the size of their beak, and that's been a really important factor that sort of regulating body temperature um, has really shaped the evolution of bird beaks. It's amazing that the biggest biological radiator you could think of, it, it turns out, is a bird because you mentioned earlier toucans. The beak is so huge that they can lose heat from their beak. There was a paper in Science that showed this last year at 400% of the rate at which they make heat. So they could literally chill themselves to the bone if they didn't very carefully control how much heat was lost from the beak and they do that by pumping blood through the superficial tissues of the beak and as the body temperature of the bird goes up so more beak gets recruited so it's amazing isn't it to think that the animals have this adaptation because everyone knows elephant ears are very good at losing heat but they're not as good as a toucan's beak an elephant can only lose 85% of the heat that it produces in any given moment through its massive ears so amazing adaptation thank you Helen well from birds to plants and there's a very interesting study been done this week by scientists in Canada this is James Carhill who's from the University of Alberta and he wanted to know what would happen if you plant two plants in the same pot what do their roots do because everyone knows that plants make roots and the roots grow out into the soil and they bring in water and nutrients for the plant to grow on but how do they compete with each other? What's the decision that goes on in the plant about where to send its roots in the soil? So this paper published in Science this week describes a series of experiments using a plant called Abutilon theophrasti. Uh, you might know this as china jute or velvet leaf. It's quite a nice, pretty flower. What they started off with was just plants grown on their own in a pot. And after the plant had grown, if you chop the stem off and inject some dye down the stem, you can label up with a coloured dye the roots, and this enables you to see where the roots go, and therefore you can work out the distribution of roots in the soil. They do that, and they find that the roots go everywhere, all over the pot. No problem there. 
What happens if you introduce another plant, though? Let's have two plants side by side and do the same experiment. Well, with the soil being homogeneous between them, in other words, there's equal amounts of nutrients in all portions of the pot, the roots of each plant grow towards each other, but when they get close, they stop, and they will not cross each other, but they will go elsewhere. Then what happens if you say, well, let's put the nutrients only right between the two plants? So in other words, in order to get water and nutrients, they've got to get together. And if you do it that time, what you find out is that the roots of the two plants grow into the nutrients and they do cross and they will intermingle with each other. And this is extraordinary because it shows that plants can actually integrate multiple information sources. They've got one source of information saying the nutrients are over here and another source of information saying, ah, but there's a competing plant here. You don't want to get too close to that because it will make you compete with it. But the plant says, well, I haven't got enough nutrients, so I'm going to have to ignore that signal and grow there anyway. No one knows what these signals are, but isn't that intriguing? It's wonderful and makes me think an awful lot more is going on when I take out my uh, plants from their pots to put them in a bigger one and uh, and they're all tangled up but obviously they're having a big fight um, in there over nutrients and, and space and, and that's very complex, very interesting. Absolutely, if there are limiting supplies of nutrients then they are going to be forced to compete with each other. Andrew, what have you got for us? Well, uh, there was an announcement this week from astronomers to remind us that the sky can tell us as much or perhaps sometimes even more, about tiny particles than experiments based down here on Earth can. Now, this was announced at a conference in London, uh, which I was actually at. And the announcement focuses on neutrinos, which are pretty mysterious particles. Performing direct experiments on neutrinos is immensely difficult because they can speed straight through solid matter without ever leaving a trace that they were actually there. But what are they? Well, they are just subatomic particles. They were predicted back in the 1930s by particle physicists looking at particular nuclear reactions and not actually directly detected experimentally until the 1950s. Now, what we actually want to measure is the mass of the neutrinos because our current model of particle physics just doesn't tell us what those masses should be. In fact, predicts they should be massless, but we now know they're definitely not. So we need to pin down what is this mass and, and why is it there? And it's been increasingly realised that astronomical scales are an excellent place to look because these neutrinos have effects on the early universe and uh, they leave telltale signs in the distribution of matter in the present-day cosmos. So this is work from University College London uh, by uh, Sean Thomas and uh, his PhD supervisor, Ofa Lahav. They have announced that they've used a survey known as Mega Z of the positions of 700,000 galaxies in combination with existing astronomical data to put a tight upper limit on the possible mass of neutrinos. And that limit says that the mass must be smaller than 0.3 of an electron volt. So that's a fraction of a billionth of a single atom. Pretty small, but why is this important? Well, it's pretty small, but it, it's actually quite significant to get this level of upper limit because it's getting close to a lower limit on the mass that's set by other uh, experiments and observations. So we're squeezing the result between a lower and an upper bound, and sooner or later we've got to get a measurement of the actual mass. Overall, it's really exciting that astronomical observations can tell us more about a tiny, elusive particle than direct experiments here on Earth. Indeed, it's extraordinary to think that you can, you can learn from the biggest things um, something about some of the smallest things. That's right, yeah. Helen. 
Right, well, I've got another story from the animal world. Well, from the, the, the natural world. And uh, my favourite place of all, of course, the oceans. And the fact that scientists have taken steps towards solving what's been a 30-year oceanographic puzzle. And that's because they've discovered that microscopic algae living in mid-ocean areas must be getting essential nutrients from as deep down as 250 metres beneath the waves. But exactly how they're doing it remains something of a tantalising mystery. The study was published in Nature this week, led by Ken Johnson from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in the States, and they've provided some answers to the important question of how algae manage to flourish in areas of clear blue ocean where there's virtually no nutrients at the surface. They went out and sent a robotic drifter called an apex float into the waters off Hawaii, not a bad place to be working, and for two years it automatically bobbed up and down in the water column between the surface and a 1,000 metres down, measuring oxygen and nitrate levels as it went. Now, they found that between January and October of each year, concentrations of oxygen in the upper 100 metres gradually increased... But at the same time, concentrations of nitrate in the deeper waters, between 100 and 250 metres, decreased. Now, this suggests that what's going on is that the algae in the shallow water, where there's lots of sunlight for photosynthesis to go on, for them to produce oxygen, but that somehow they're grabbing nutrients from deeper, darker waters. But how they do this is something that we don't yet know. Johnson and the team suggest that there could be dormant microalgae living in the deeper waters um, and that they're occasionally stirred up into shallower waters by swirling eddy currents. They could maybe reach around 70 metres um, and then from there they'd mop up some of the nutrients that are down there and perhaps carry on their way towards the sunlit shallows under their own steam because algae can actually swim. They've got little flagella and um, little hairs that they can use to swim with um, and they can control their own buoyancy. So by stirring them up in that way you sort of bring them up plus a dose of food for them and so they arrive in this warmer water with the food so they can then flourish because of sunlight there. Absolutely, that's the key thing. It's nutrients and sunlight together that they need to be able to flourish. And this is all very important because these mid-ocean algae are, are, are important important part of the, the carbon cycle. They're fixing a fifth of the carbon dioxide uptake of all the plants and algae for the whole planet. So it's playing a really important role in global climate. So we really need to understand what's going on. Indeed, especially, as you say, with, with interest being focused as it is on the climate side of things, understanding how something like the ocean, which has such a huge role to play in soaking up CO2, actually works. It's pretty important, isn't it? Absolutely, completely. Helen, thanks. Well, also in the news this week, researchers at uh, Yale University in America have come one step closer to building a functional lung in the laboratory. The team stripped cells off the lung of a rat, which left behind a connective tissue scaffolding, which they then repopulated with new cells. And this newly formed lung successfully exchanged oxygen and carbon dioxide for a short time after it was transplanted into another recipient rat. And this offers hope that we might be able to build replacement lung tissue for people in the future. Well, joining us to tell us a bit more about how he made this happen is one of the researchers, Dr Thomas Peterson, who's a postdoctoral associate in biomedical engineering at Yale. Hello, Thomas. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Tell us, first, first of all, I gave a very brief summary and overview there. How did you actually do this work? Well, you gave a very excellent summary. Um, we start, as you said, with a normal lung of a rat and treat it with a chemical solution to remove all the cells. And this gives us this three-dimensional scaffold or skeleton of a lung. And that's a very important part because the 3D structure of a lung is quite complex and something that we couldn't easily make in the laboratory if we wanted to. So we can't, say, make an artificial material that is in the shape of a lung. Um, and this scaffold can then be seeded with cells. 
a variety of cell types. We used both blood vessel cells, airway cells. And then we cultured this growing tissue in the lab for about a week, after which we can take it out and study it in a variety of ways. And we can also transplant it into rats, as you mentioned. And once you've got the scaffolding, how do the cells that you transplant onto that scaffolding know where to go and what sorts of cells to turn into? Well, that's a very good question. Um, so there are two things that we did to try and help the cells go to the right places. The first at a very high level is we put them into the right compartments. So in the lung, you pretty much have two areas. You have the airway compartment and the blood vessel compartment. And so at a very high level, we just put the blood vessel cells into the blood vessels and the airway cells into the airways. The second thing we did to try and help this was during this one week of growth in the lab, we provided stimuli to the lung. So the lung was being breathed, uh, similar to the way a patient is breathed on a ventilator. And we also pumped nutrients, a nutrient solution, through the blood vessels of the lung. So these two stimuli helped to encourage the cells to grow in more normal lung patterns. But certainly, we don't fully know why all of the cells seem to go to the right places. And that's something that we're interested in trying to look into further going forward. Because one of the interesting things about lungs is that it's not just a bunch of blood vessels and a bunch of airway cells. There are individual different types of cells in both structures, but but certainly in the airways, there are things like cells that make the surfactant, the chemical that makes the water lose its surface tension so the airways don't collapse, for example. Those cells appeared and populated the airways in the right numbers in your tests. Do you think there are signals coming off of that underlying scaffold that direct the cells to turn into certain specialised forms? Yes, absolutely. Our, our most likely scenario is that there are cues left behind on this empty three-dimensional scaffold that are helping to direct the right cells to adhere to the right spots on the lung. Um, there are other possibilities that we're interested in looking into, but that's really the most likely scenario, that there's some cellular signals that are staying behind on the scaffold. And you were able to, to take this regrown lung, which took, what, a week or so to regrow, and then put that into a recipient animal? That's correct. So we performed left lung transplants on uh, several animals. Um, this was only short-term transplants for up to two hours. They did work quite well. There was no large leaks of air or blood. Um, and the primary function we're looking at uh, evaluating is, as you said earlier, is gas exchange. So whether the, the lungs can oxygenate the blood that's flowing through them and whether they can remove carbon dioxide out of the blood. And they performed very well in both of those aspects. Why did you only go for two hours? Was that all that you had uh, permission to do, let's say, or was it that the lungs at some point failed beyond that point and there's more work to do? Right. Well, it's a, it's a combination of both of those. We, we do have limitations on what we can do in the animals, and two hours was our objective. And the lungs were still doing fine. They were still breathing. There was still blood flowing through them after two hours. But certainly, we wouldn't right now expect that they would have functioned as well for, say, a day or, or even uh, maybe even several hours. Um, after two hours, in some of the lungs, we were able to see small blood clots forming in some areas. And certainly that would have gotten worse over time. And that's one of the things we need to work on in this going forward is ensuring that no blood clots form in the engineered lung. Now, one obvious direct application of this is to say, well, if we do lung transplants on humans, whilst this does save lives, the long-term prognosis is still quite poor because the immune system moves in and causes damage, infections move in and cause damage, 
and therefore it's not a perfect solution. If we could take a, a lung scaffold and populate it with a person's own cells so we didn't have to reduce the activity of the immune system, this would presumably be a very big short-term goal for work of this type. Right. Well, I would still call that a long-term goal. Um, we do obviously want to transition this work into human tissue. Um, and the way to do that would be to start with a human or a similarly sized lung scaffold and then obtain pa uh, cells from a given patient. And there are, have been advances lately involving stem cell work, involving adult-derived stem cells um, that we could possibly use to uh, repopulate this human lung scaffold. Um, and that would avoid uh, rejection in a transplant patient. I would estimate it would still take, say, 20 years before we can grow a fully functional human lung in the laboratory. Although I guess that uh, the ultimate goal, and the reason I said a shorter-term goal versus a longer-term one, is that you really want to be able to produce a complete lung de novo by using, say, microfabrication techniques or something to lay down a scaffold so you don't have to borrow someone else's. Uh, yes, well, there's a few ways in which you could get the scaffold to begin with. Um, the first option would be a human lung that is not suitable for transplant. And, and there are quite a few uh, available lungs that are just simply not good enough to be used for transplant. It's also possible to potentially use the lung of a primate or even a pig. Um, the molecules that make up this lung scaffold are highly conserved. They're highly similar across these species. And it would be highly unlikely that they would be recognized by the body as foreign, meaning they would not then be rejected. Which is very encouraging. We wish you luck with it, Thomas. Thank you for joining us to tell us all about the research. Um, we'll put the details of Thomas's paper, which is published actually in Science this week, on our website, alongside all of the other news stories we've covered. The details of that are at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. That was Thomas Peterson, who is a researcher from Yale. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.